Amen. Okay, well, last week, um, I always like to do a little recap, um, just so uh, we kind of get a little grounding, and sometimes it helps to remember what we talked about, because sometimes I don't remember what I studied the night before. So, um, last week we talked about the canon. We finished up our study on the canon of, uh, we did some Old Testament, we did mostly New Testament, um, looking at the canon of Scripture, and uh, we, we spent the majority of our time looking at the New Testament canon because I think, at least on a popular level, on a street level, that uh, the New Testament books of the Bible are the most often contested uh, by unbelievers. And so I really wanted us to spend more time on the New Testament to, to really ground ourselves um, in what uh, is, is to be Scripture and what is to be uh, the, the, the books of, of our Bible and what are to be excluded I really want us to get a grasp on that. And as we thought about that, as we talked about canon last week, does anybody, what was kind of like the overriding characteristic of that was necessary for a book to be considered scripture? Does anybody remember like what I tried to emphasize? It must be apostolic. Apostolic. First century. Right. Apostolic. Good. You had notes or you remember yeah. that? Right. Notes are okay. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. I think that's the easiest way to think about it as well. Um, because like I said, when you listen to different people teach on the canon of Scripture, they all have these lists that they form. Um, you know, some of the things would be uh, that, that they, need to be, they need to be first century documents in order to be uh, included in the canon of the New Testament. They need to be, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, most certainly. Um, they need to be con- uh, congruent with everything that else is taught in Scripture. It can't be something heretical or something off. And uh, I think all of those other points can all be lumped into the idea that the writings needed to be apostolic. They needed to be written by an apostle, um, one whom Jesus made the promise to, that the Spirit would be given to them in such a way um, that they would be able to bring to remembrance all the things taught by Jesus. And so, that's right, a a book needed to be apostolic, which means it either needed to be written by an apostle, or an apostle could affirm another writing. And so we actually took some time, we pretty much went through all the books of the New Testament, and showed how they were either written by an apostle, or we matched up uh, the writings that weren't written by apostles with whatever apostle would have affirmed uh, their writings. And so we, we went through all that, we even... Uh, got into a little bit of the book of Hebrews, which is probably the toughest book in the New Testament when it comes to canonicity because the the writer of the book of Hebrews is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. And because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't know which apostle which would have affirmed that writing. We don't know which apostle would have been the associate of the author of the book of Hebrews. So that's a tough book. The book of Hebrews is a tough book. But as I said... Um, in all of this discussion, I take comfort in the faithfulness of God to uh, providentially work all this out when it comes to the, the issue of the canon and also what we'll talk about today. Um, I put my faith in the, in the, in the faithfulness of God um, to give us his word. Um, but I think uh, the book of Hebrews, once again, I think because of the way we saw how all of the other books were without a doubt apostolic, we knew who the authors were. And if they weren't an apostle themselves, we know of the apostles that would have affirmed their writings. I think the book of Hebrews, we would have no reason to think, was not the same situation. Um, I think that the, the writer of the book of Hebrews was either an apostle or affirmed by an apostle. And that's why the church has um, accepted 
that writing and the apostles would have given their amen to it. So, that was the discussion of the canon. And as we discussed the canon, what we were discussing was which books are to be included as scripture in our Bibles. Now today, we're going to move on to a very related topic. Um, I think it's a much more particular study than which books in general are to be considered scripture. Um, today, we're going to we're going to talk about something uh, known as textual criticism. Textual criticism. Don't let the word scare you. Don't let these words scare you. Um, we'll explain exactly what this means. Um, it's nothing out of the ordinary. Um, it's done with all books of antiquity. Any old book that was handwritten, that was passed down through the ages, all of the writings in the history of mankind, in order to understand what was originally written, we go through a process called textual criticism. And so here we're not trying to determine which books are to be in our New Testament canon. We, we did that last week. Here, more precisely, we're going to look at exactly which words in those books are indeed um, to be included in the Bible. Um, I think uh, maybe by way of introduction to this topic, I think uh, we'll turn to the book of Mark. Turn to the book of Mark, chapter 16, verse 9. I know, Brother Jason, you, you asked about this text last week. I think it's definitely a relevant um, text to look at, especially with what we're talking about today. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Um, as you get to Mark chapter 16 at verse 9, um, first of all, you can notice here that this is the very ending of the, the book of Mark. Um, here, this is the very, the very end of the book. Um, it's probably the very last page that you have. In my Bible, at least it is the last, the last page of the book of Mark. And uh, what we want to take notice of is if you look at verse 9, what you probably have in your Bibles at Mark chapter 16, verse 9, you either have some brackets or you may have a, uh, a number denoting that there's a note that you should reference in your margins or at the bottom of, of the page. Um, if your Bible has notes, mine, mine does. Um, I, like the, I like the notes. Um, just for this reason in particular, um, because what you'll see in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, is you probably have brackets and a note. And if you read the note, um, I'll read you what mine says. Uh, and, and the note is actually right there at the beginning of verse 9. It says, A few late manuscripts and versions contain this paragraph. Okay, a few late manuscripts contain this paragraph. Does anybody else have any different uh, wording? Does anybody else have... A uh, note there. Mine just adds to it that some place it at the end of the chapter mm -hmm. instead of after eight. Some place it after eight. Okay. Okay. Any other notes? Does all y'all does y'all's Bible have notes or? My reference is Matthew twenty uh, twenty-seven fifty-six. Okay, so you have a cross reference. Okay, it so. Fills in what's, what would have been missing. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, some some Bibles may say. Later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. Some of your Bibles may have that. It may say later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. Um, so what this is saying, what these notes are saying, is that the earliest manuscripts, in other words, the earliest documents that we have, the earliest copies of the book of Mark, 
did not actually include these verses. Um, they actually get added later on um, to the, the copying tradition of, of the New Testament. Um, let's look at maybe one more related instance. Uh, turn to the book of John now. Turn to the Gospel of John. John 7. Turn to John 7, uh, verse 53. We find a very similar instance here of a, of a similar note. John 7.53, if John 7.53 is how chapter 7 ends, and then as chapter 8 begins, you probably have a title in your Bible called The Adulterous Woman. It's a very famous passage in the New Testament. Uh, hopefully you're all familiar with it. Uh, but it's, it's that, that story where uh, the Pharisees bring that woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus, and they're, they're wanting uh, to, to catch Jesus in a catch-22 um, in some way holding him uh, to breaking the law of Moses or something like that. But um, they ask Jesus uh, that she should be stoned. Jesus writes in the sand, if you remember, and tells them, Whoever has, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Right? And you remember that as, uh, as they all realized that they've all in fact sinned, they, they all leave and one by one and leave. But notice um, in verse 53 there, in my Bible I have brackets, the whole section from John 7.53 to chapter 8, verse 11, is all encapsulated in brackets. And there's a note there in my Bible um, at verse 53 that says, again, the same thing, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman. Later manuscripts add this story. So what that note is telling us is that the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John do not include the story. So at some point in the copying of the book of John, this story, this very famous story, um, is actually added to the manuscript uh, tradition. Um, these, these two sections here that we just looked at, the end of Mark and here at, at John uh, 7.53 through 8.11, these are the two um, largest uh, by way of, uh, by, of, of verses, the biggest sections of textual issues that we really have to deal with in the New Testament. Um, these are the two big ones. These are the two that people will point out to you um, for, for whatever number of reasons, that whatever points they're trying to make. Um, but they will question uh, these sections of your Bible. And uh, in the King James versions of the Bible, these sections were included. Um, in the original King James versions, they actually had textual notes in them. But as time went and uh, some people actually held um, some pretty strange views concerning the King James Version that, um, that there was no notes included with them. But in our Bibles, our Bibles let us know, and I think it's very helpful that our Bibles let us know that these were not actually included in the earliest manuscripts um, of our Bibles. I think that's a good thing, um, that, it, that it lets us know that. Um, we don't want to be ignorant. It's not good. Christians shouldn't be ones who stick their head in the sand and pretend like um, there's not uh, issues to deal with. But these are the two big ones, and they are big textual-wise. I mean, a couple stories here in our Bibles um, that we have, to, we have to deal with. Neither of these stories appear in the textual tradition um, until the 4th century. So for four centuries, no manuscripts know of these stories, and then all of a sudden they start appearing um, it's very interesting. Um, for instance, the adulterous woman story, um, even in the fourth century, as it starts to appear 
in the manuscript tradition, it doesn't always even appear right here at John 7.53. That story actually appears in, in, in random. It seems to be random parts of the book of John. And in one manuscript, it actually appears at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. And so this, this story of the adulterous woman is, is, uh, is not uh, thought to be original. It was not written by the, uh, the uh, Apostle John. But later on it was added and it found its way into to different manuscripts as this story was told. Um, it's interesting to note that, that that doesn't mean that this story didn't actually happen. Uh, this could have very well actually have happened. It could be a very historic account and that's why it finds its way into manuscripts. Um, but what we're concerned about, uh, more than anything, what we want to be concerned about is what John actually wrote. We want to know what the Apostle John wrote. Not what later scribes um, wanted John to write or what later scribes wanted us to know. We want to be concerned with what the actual inspired apostles of God wrote. And so that's why we do this work. That's why we do this work of determining what was actually written by the apostles. And this work is done through something called textual criticism. Um, Let's look at one more, one more instance of this. It's not as big textually, but throughout the history of church, it's been a very significant textual issue. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 John this time. 1 John 5, 7. 1 John 5, 7. This is a, this is a, a very interesting one because I think it has more theological implications than maybe the adulterous woman situation or the long ending of Mark. Um, 1 John 5.7 is a very interesting textual issue here. 1 John 5.7 and verse 8, really, it kind of includes both verses, but in the NASB, verses 7 and 8 read this. It says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Right? Is that what is that what y'all's Bibles has? Or does any of y'all's Bibles include more text than that? Is that what all of y'all said? Well, I actually have a note, and you probably have a note as well in verse 8. And my note on the side of my Bible says that a few late manuscripts add some words. And I'll read those words to you. So if you were to insert the added words back into the text, it would read this starting at verse 7. It would say, For there are three that testify... There are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, and then the text continues, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. So, could anybody, let's play textual criticism for a moment, and let's pretend that you're studying the early manuscripts of the book of John, or 1 John, for instance, and none of your early manuscripts include this extra phrase, but let's say you come across a manuscript that all of a sudden has this included in it. How would you reason through that uh, addition? Or why do you think a scribe would add that language there? Um, that, remember, the added language was this. It says that there's three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Do you, I mean, what, what do you think about that? Any any ideas? It just offers clarity mm -hmm. for what was being spoken of, especially in light of the beginning of John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what we think is happening there is, and, and what actually happened was, um, 
the earliest uh, place where we find this additional language was actually a side note on the copy of a Latin uh, Vulgate, right? So that the actual text of what John wrote is he said there that the spirit, the water, and the blood are these three in agreement. And what happened was some scribe in basically trying to clarify, as Jason said, what that, what those three meant, the spirit, the water, and the blood, he added almost like a Trinitarian statement there on the notes. And then what you find is later on is that that side note that he had included on his manuscript as somebody copied his manuscript that got included in the actual text, and that that continued on in the, in the manuscript tradition. And it found its way all the way into the King James Version of the Bible uh, because of that. Um, but what we know, and this is what's so good about textual criticism, this is why um, we, can, we can have confidence in our Bibles, is that we do have much earlier uh, manuscripts and much earlier copies of the Bible before this got added in so that we know that it wasn't original. As much as we would like to have another Trinitarian very clear Trinitarian statement in our Bibles. Um, if it's not what John wrote, we really don't want it there. As as helpful it might be apologetically or something like that. Um, I don't know. In my ESV study Bible, it's interesting that um, I didn't even have a note or anything. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even include it. Yeah. No note. I, I mean, like, the ESV doesn't even give this textual variant the time of day. It's the original version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So basically what the editors of the ESV are saying, this is... This verse has so little chance of even being original that we're not even going to address the issue, which is which was me was surprising because that at, through church history that was a very significant uh, verse for the for the def- defense of the Trinity um, that was actually not original, um, but but because the ESV uh, understands how this works, um, it understands that there was really no chance as you study through the copies of the New Testament to actually be. Um, original. Um, so those those three textual issues that we looked at, um, there's more in your Bible. You'll notice um, here or there a word um, will be off in the notes and it will say maybe something like early manuscripts don't include this word um, or something like that. But I showed you the big ones. I showed you the most significant ones um, just, to, just to kind of help you uh, get your mind around what's going on here. Uh, but there are more. So the question is, the question for us is, um, with these issues being in our Bibles and with us having notes in our Bibles saying that there was mistakes throughout the copying of the New Testament, how can we know um, what was to be the original writing? How do we know what John said and how do we know what wasn't a mistake by a, a copier of the New Testament? How do we know what John or Peter or Luke actually wrote? You see why this is important? You see how significant of a study this really is? Um, to me, textual criticism was, is what really got me into uh, doing the studies of Greek that I've done because this was so interesting to me. It was so interesting to me to know that this was a study and some, a work that had to be done. You know, So I wanted to know enough Greek that I could actually, as I read through how these things are being decided, I could understand what they were even talking about. You know, So that, that was kind of a driving force to me. Uh, but this is... It is very important. It's very important for many reasons. Um, but this is the work. This is a necessary work uh, to be done in, in determining um, what the apostles wrote thousands of years ago when they wrote uh, their documents. And so, in general, maybe just to, in a very general statement, what's happening here and the way we decide what was originally written was 
um, these scholars who study these things, these early manuscripts, they take all of the manuscripts that we have, the early handwritten manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, and they compare them uh, to each other. And by comparing them to each other, there's ways, and we'll look at some of those ways, of determining uh, where changes happened and, and where mistakes were made and, um, and even why those mistakes were made. I mean, this, 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 uh, I've been surprised at how uh, much study has been done in this, in a sense, in that these errors that copyists make, the same errors that me and you would make if I handed you the Gospel of John and asked you to copy it, the same mistakes you made, no different than what they would make, very common, um, easily recognizable mistakes. And we'll look at some of them. And so they're easy, for the most part, to decipher, decipher and to find as you study the the manuscripts, and we'll see how that works. But really my hope, my hope is that even this whole discussion um, and the reality that there's some verses that have been include, included in maybe the King James Version of the Bible that weren't original. I hope this isn't catching you by surprise. Um, I hope that at some point in your, um, in whatever churches maybe that you came from, that this was addressed in some sense, um, you know, uh, usually as we teach through books, I remember teaching through James and through Galatians and even Acts. There was textual issues that I would try to mention as I went through it. Um, maybe you didn't even know what I was talking about. Uh, but I tried to throw it in as I could. But we want you to be aware of this issue. Um, I don't want you um, to be stumbled by the reality that our, that our New Testament was copied by hand. And those people who copied it by hand made mistakes. I, don't, I want you to be aware of this so that you're not thrown off because many people, just by what we've looked at today, many people have forsaken the faith. Many people. I mean, I can give you an example of one. For instance, um, a man named Bart Ehrman. Maybe you're all familiar with the name Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman started off as a professing Christian. Bart Ehrman went to, uh, he went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, started seminary there. And guess what he found out? That the same things that I was just showing you right now in the Bible as he started studying the Bible more seriously that there was actually things added to the manuscript tradition as time went on and it completely um, sunk his faith. He actually lost all hope in, in the Word of God and now you'll find this guy. Well, what's interesting is he didn't leave Bible school. He actually continued to study all of these early manuscripts um, to the point that he was actually one of the leading scholars at the time in textual criticism. Um, you'll find that guy now debating Christians. He write, he's the most popular writer uh, of, of popular books trying to, uh, to discount the, 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 the veracity of the New Testament, basically saying this, basically at the end of the day for him, this can't be the word of God because copyists made errors as they copied the Bible and God would never allow that to happen. That's basically what his view of the situation. Um, basically for Bart Ehrman, he would have, the only way that the Bible could be the Word of God is if God would have overridden every person's uh, copying ability so that there would be no variation whatsoever. Even then, as we know, if you leave the faith, that wouldn't suffice for him. You know, I mean, for him, it was probably an excuse to abandon the Scriptures, you know, but, um, but I think it does catch uh, many, many off guard. Um, I, I, remember the, I remember the exact moment when I found out about this. I, was, I remember laying in front of the TV um, at my aunt and uncle's house in San Antonio, laying there watching TV, and my cousin, who's a Christian, she was talking about this, and she was telling me how we don't actually have the original writings of the apostles. I remember her telling me that. I, 
I was blown away. I didn't even know what to do with that information. I just always assumed, you know, I don't know, I don't know why. I don't think anybody ever told me that we actually still had the original writings, but um, I remember it. I remember it throwing me for a loop, and, and I didn't even know what to do with that information. You know, what I mean, it made me wonder. It made me wonder at, at how all this works. Um, but I want you guys, just as when we looked at the issues of the canon, I want you guys more than anything to uh, to put your faith in a faithful God. I mean, all these things that we're looking at, this is a, these are people devote their lives to studying these things, and they're doing the hard work. I want you guys to rest in, in God's faithfulness. You know, all of these issues that we'll, that we'll look at today have been worked out. Even Bart Ehrman, this great opponent, this, this uh, great apostate from the faith, even he's saying at this, at this point in time with all of the manuscripts that we have and we're trying to put them together, he says, we're just tinkering around. All the work's been done is what he's saying. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. I think... To me, it's like it strengthens your faith because you realize that somebody didn't try to hide or cover up something, you know, but they made a note of it. Exactly. It's like we can trust because even those guys wrote down that, hey, this wasn't originally in there. Yeah, very good. Compare it with the rest of Scripture and see that it doesn't contradict anything in Scripture. Very good. I think think that's what exactly what uh, Brother Wally's saying. That's what I'd like to leave you with is that these issues, we know of these issues because. And we can recognize the mistakes. That's the good thing, is that we can know when a mistake was made. Um, we don't have to wonder. And it will actually strengthen your faith in, in God's faithfulness in, in providing all of these manuscripts, as we'll see that we have, um, that we can know where the errors were made. Because we have so much evidence, as we'll see, of the writings of the New Testament. We can see when a mistake was made. And it will actually, it should bolster your faith in, in, in God's faithfulness in providing all these these manuscripts for us and all of this, this evidence um, of the original writing. So this is kind of how I want to do it. I don't know if this is the wisest way to do it or not, but this is what I came up with. I thought what we would do is maybe I would throw out some common objections that you might hear uh, concerning the New Testament, maybe some accusations that I've heard uh, the leading scholar, Bart Ehrman himself, throw out, and uh, we'll maybe work through this together. And, and along the way, we'll see... Um, where some of their um, statements and accusations and objections go wrong. And, and we'll look at the reality of how the New Testament was actually passed down and copied through the, through the centuries, and it should bolster your faith in, in what we have in our Bibles. Um, so maybe the first accusation that you might hear. Um, you might hear somebody say to you um, that we don't, as I've kind of already, already uh, blown this one out of the water, but... Somebody might tell you we don't actually have the original writings of the very apostles themselves. We don't actually have the book of Mark. We don't actually have the original book of Romans. We don't actually have the actual ink written by the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. And we don't actually have those things. And um, by this point, it shouldn't surprise you that uh, that's true. That's a true, that's a true statement, is that we don't actually have the original writings of the New Testament um, those have all been lost um, through the centuries. Um, but what we're going to see today is why that's okay. We're going to see w- why we can still know what in fact was written in those ri- original documents, and we'll see that by what has been left and what has been copied. Um, this, is, this is the work of textual criticism. Um, maybe another accusation um, that kind of goes along with the first one, and it will kind of help us to answer the first objection is that we don't have these original writings. And so what the picture some people try to paint for you is something um, 
very similar to what is known as the telephone game. I don't know if any of you guys in school grew up and played the telephone game. Um, I know I did. It's always fun. It's always good for a laugh. But basically, in people's minds, they, they have the, the, the copying of the New Testament down to what we have in our Bibles today. And their minds are thinking of something similar to the telephone game, as in the telephone games where the teacher would, would uh, maybe tell Chris in the front of the room, uh, whisper something into his ear, right? And then Chris would have to go uh, whisper to Miriam's ear and all of the, and, it, and you're only allowed to whisper. You're allowed to whisper. You're not allowed to repeat anything. The person who you whisper to is not allowed to check and, and, and clarify. And so that just happens throughout the room. No clarification, whispers, mishearings, misspeakings, all the way to the back of the room. And then everybody gets a laugh, you know, as, as Scott back there tells us what he thought um, I originally said. That's how a lot of people imagine the copying of the New Testament to happen. Uh, but that's not at all, that's not at all what we have. Uh, but I think, I think on a very popular level, and as you do evangelism, as you talk to people, and they explain to you why they don't believe the Bible, in their minds, they, that's what they think happened. They think it's a telephone game. They think John wrote something, it's been copied, 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 mistakes, piling on top of mistakes. And then we come to what we have in our Bibles, and who knows what was originally actually said. That's, that's how they think. Um, so, and hopefully that's not how you think. I want us to um, kind of tighten up our view, uh, give you actually a more realistic view of what happened. Yes, John? Just, just curious, I'm, you probably have it in your notes. Are you going to get to actually, instead of the telephone game, what the model, what the model is? Here comes the model. Okay. Here comes the model of what actually this looked like. Um, but maybe to preface this, maybe to give you even, let's turn to our Bibles as we study the Bible. Uh, Colossians 4.16. Even... Even in the scriptures themselves, we see a good hint at how this actually happened. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, this is in the book of Colossians, written to the city of Colossae. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, When this letter is read among you, speaking of the book we have of the book of Colossians, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Okay, you see what's happening here? There's multiple cities um, sharing the letters written by the Apostle Paul. The, the letters of the uh, the epistles of the Apostle Paul, as well as the Gospels, and all of our other letters were passed around from church to church. And, uh, and as that happened, um, copies were most certainly made in those churches. Um, and we'll see, why, we'll see why this is a good thing, and, it, and it's helpful for us to, to understand how the, the Bible was passed down and why we can know what it originally said. So let me maybe do this by diagram, and I think... I think if I would have had like something like this in my mind at an earlier point in time, it would have helped me work through some of these issues. Because I think if you have this, maybe that's just how I think, but if you have a picture of how this actually um, happened, um, it will help you as people maybe raise objections. And if you have the reality in the picture of it painted in your mind, maybe it'll help you to maybe correct their misapprehensions. But um, let's, let's do uh, the book of Romans, for instance. The book of Romans. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans, and uh, this book gets um, copied. It gets copied and goes to a church. 
right? There's the first copy that goes to a church. Now, as that church receives the book of Romans, um, people in that church make copies. People in the church make copies, right? So now we have multiple copies um, that exist within the, the one fellowship of the church. Um, this letter, just as we saw here with the book of Colossians, Paul wanted his letters to be read amongst the churches. Um, so his, his letter would also be passed to another church, um, and that church would read it aloud and would make copies. Um, other things would happen, such as evangelism and the spread of the gospel, and people would move, and they would take their copies to other churches and other cities. And so in the same way as the letter of the Apostle Paul um, came to a church, they would make copies. And you can see how this, how this spreads out. And I could, yes, sir? question is, all these people that rewrote or made their own copies and add to or take away yep. the true word of God, mm-hmm. they're going to be held accountable, correct? In the judgment? Well, I think if they were to make intentional copies, trying to mislead people or to um, teach false doctrine or to change the Bible intentionally, uh, most certainly. Um, but as we're going to see, um, with every single copy that's made, there are mistakes made. It's impossible not to in a handwritten copy. So accidents, if I misspell Jesus' name as I'm copying a manuscript, God's not going to, that's not sin, you know. Um, and, and for the most part, as we're going to see, it's just complete accidental um, first century people writing by candlelight, copying off of papyrus, which is just a plant that they made into paper, and they misread things. That's it's it's most of this is harmless, harmless mistakes that me and you would make. I mean, some of these people. Can you imagine uh, receiving a, a, the word of God from the Apostle Paul and say you had the the ability to make your own copy? How careful? I mean, you would want to be careful. All of these people, the majority of these people were faithful Christians who wanted the word of God, wanted to spread the word of God. They just made accidental mistakes. We'll see some of those mistakes and it'll, it'll ease your mind. You see, oh, okay, wow, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's harmless in and of itself. We'll see why it's harmless. So this, I mean, you could, as the years go on, this is just going to expand exponentially. This whole picture is going to expand exponentially. So there's some things as you get a picture like this in your mind that will erase some of the error. For instance, and first of all, what this ends up being as time goes on is definitely not the telephone game. It's not the telephone game. I mean, these copies go to these churches and this spreads. Um, it's not the telephone game. Imagine um, you're at a church, say you're this guy who, gets a, who makes a copy of a, of a New Testament, for instance, or a book of the book of Romans that you copy. Um, your copy's not in a vacuum. You have, your church has the copy that, that was sent to them. You, the other brethren in your church have a copy that's, that was sent to them. You know, so it's not like um, there's nothing to reference your copy with. You also have the other copies that are right there in your church or from other people you know. Or What's even more important, and, and what I think, especially as this begins, especially as this copying begins, who is still around? As these copies are being made, the very authors of the books themselves are still traveling around doing ministry. You know, we went through the book of Acts. We saw the Apostle Paul. I mean, he, he visited some of these churches numerous times, right? Some of the churches came when he would get put in jail. They'd come visit him. So most assuredly, even the very authors themselves were still around for 
all of this, at least the early stuff, you know, I mean, all these are just general pictures, but the authors were still around of these very books that could clarify, and I guarantee you when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, there were questions. You know what I mean? Some of the same questions we probably had. And these people could go to the Apostle Paul and, uh, yes, sir, in the back. How you doing? Sorry, just going to say. Yeah, please do. Yes, sir. I was wondering why you were not talking about the gospel. Because this has nothing to do with what Jesus did for us, how he came to us, how God sent Jesus to us so that he can give us life and how we've forgiven our sins. What does this have to do with the gospel? Well, the book of Romans is the, is the gospel, is the very gospel. It's the most um, thorough gospel presentation that you could find in the New Testament, the book of Romans. Romans is a testimony written by a believer, and that believer was first influenced by Christ, correct? Isn't was he what? The gospel itself, isn't that the same thing as life that Jesus came to give the truth? That mm-hmm. Jesus came to show the truth? Yeah. Jesus Christ left to his apostles, as I said, John 14, 26. He promised them the spirit that would, that would bring the ability to re, bring to their mind all the things that Jesus did and taught. Paul once said, mm-hmm. when people were arguing, I was baptized by Peter's name, Paul's name. Right. Didn't Paul himself said, was it by my name that you were baptized to? That Jesus Christ is the one true mind. Mm-hmm. Why are we, like, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with loving your neighbor, loving God? Like, well, everything that you're mentioning is in the book of Romans. That's what that book is written about and concerning. Yes, I understand that. But okay. What is what you're doing right now? What you're talking about right now? What does that okay. Okay. What I'm trying to do is to reassure my church that they actually have the words written by the apostles that Jesus um, uh, inspired to write the Word of God. Because what I was trying to say, I don't think you were here at the beginning, but many people will say. We can't actually know the things that you're talking about, like that we should love neighbor and that Jesus is the true vine. Some people don't think that we can actually know that was true. They think that the Bible's been lost over time. I'm just trying to uh, reassure my church that we do, in fact, have what the apostles actually wrote, all those things that you said. We can know Jesus is the true vine because we have records and copies and documentation that the apostles, in fact, wrote those things. That's, what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. There's a lot of written testimonies, but isn't it great that Truth worship is God, worship God and spirit and truth. Yeah. What does that mean? It means, well, truth would be based on the scripture, the scripture that we're trying to study now. That's how you know truth is what's been written down. Um, apart from the truth of the scriptures, and that's why I think this is so important, you can't know what truth is apart from the scriptures. Right? So, so let's just go on here. Because what I wanted to point out was, I hope you get a picture of something like this in your mind as you think about how this happened. Um, because it's not the telephone game. And I think, as I said, most importantly, the apostles, after they wrote these things, were still around. They were still around to verify these things. Um, maybe, a, maybe another significant uh, thing to notice is that sometimes you may think, as this copying happened, and we come down later and later, um, you may think that some of these manuscripts uh, may have no chance, maybe, of being deemed worthy of being the worthy. Maybe by that time there has been enough mistakes. But what's interesting enough to know is that um, you have instances, for instance, Codex 1739. It's a very interesting 10th century manuscript. So I'm talking about a manuscript that would be, if, if this whole trail went down, it would be way down there. 1739 was actually copied directly from a 4th century manuscript. So you can have very faithful Late, late copies that actually reference and copy a very early 
manuscripts. So that happens as well, right? So um, this definitely, as random as it looks in my drawing, it's actually a very faithful way to determine uh, that you're having faithful copying of the manuscripts, right? Has anybody got any questions maybe about the diagram or how that maybe works out in real life? Anything? Yes, sir. I was just thinking, kind of along with what he was saying, in order, you know, the another book, Revelation, the beginning chapter of Revelation, it states, blessed is the one who he reads, hears, and keeps what is written. And so in order for us to be blessed by the gospel, we have to read it, hear it, and keep it. Yeah. So that, that I, like what you're doing, you put it all together, because how do I know what the gospel is unless I read it and hear it? Yeah. Yeah, it would be a scary thing, I think, like if people like Bart Ehrman were right in what they were saying, and we didn't actually know what the apostles actually wrote. I mean, we wouldn't have the faith. If we didn't know what Jesus' followers and disciples actually wrote, that would indeed be a terrifying thing. I mean, we would be hopeless at that point, I think. Um, but thank God that, and this is really what we're looking at, this is the way that God, um, in his providence, worked out so that we could know what was actually said. All of this, all of these copies is what God used so that we can have assurance of what was originally written. And it takes a lot of work. Like I said, these scholars spend their entire lives doing this hard work so that we can just open up our Bibles, all the work being done for us, and maybe we'll have a note or two to help us out. But um, it's definitely a, a necessary work. Um, maybe, let me, let me, let me at the, with the last of our time, throw out uh, this idea that you might hear. And maybe some of you guys can tell me how you would answer it. Just based off of what we've talked about so far, you'll hear this accusation. How can you know um, what the Bible originally said because there's over 400,000 variants? There's over 400,000 differences amongst the manuscripts that we have. 400,000 is pretty much the going number these days. That's a legitimate number probably 400,000 differences um, between these manuscripts. Um, how would you respond to that um, accusation if somebody's trying to shake you on the trustworthiness of the Bible and they say, there's 400,000 differences in, in the New Testament? Well, the New Testament only has 138,000 words. So there's 138,000 words in the New Testament. There's a true statement that in all the manuscripts we have, total, there's 400,000 differences. That's three differences a word. How do you reason through that um, accusation in your mind? How do you work through that? Yes, sir. I think it depends on the individual um, mm -hmm. and what they're used to. For example, let's say this at UNT. Mm -hmm. I might find, I try and find some common ground with what they already use in their, you know, verbiage and stuff for. So I might give them an example. If I said you and I were in class together mm -hmm. and I say, I call the people that I'm with students. You may say fellow students, well, right there you've added an additional word. Right. You haven't taken away from what we're talking about. So I would say, would you see a difference in saying students and fellow students? Right. I mean, if there is a difference, and so that could be a point of variance, there is a difference. You yep. see, And they say, yes, there's a difference. You, I added fellow. So, so I'd say, you yeah. see how then just adding a word doesn't actually take away from the whole of the text. So what you're saying is there could be differences that are so insignificant, it doesn't matter. And that's what, yeah, a lot, that's, that's quite true. Um, I would even say out of those 400,000 differences, 
um, less than 1% actually even could possibly matter. The majority of the mistakes are spelling mistakes, um, very common mistakes that any of us who were faithfully trying to copy the Word of God would make and are very easily recognizable. Over 99% of them. So that 400,000 gets small real quick. Yes, ma'am. And the thing is that you can tell the difference between a, the translation, like let's say you compare the King James and the NIV and mm -hmm. all that, but when you compare that to the world translation from the Jehovah's Witnesses, right. then you'll know how to point out what has changed. It's not just grammatical, it's the doctrine mm -hmm. that's being changed. And that's... And the reason we know that the New World Translation has changed is because all the Bibles before it had a reading. Now there's a new reading. That makes it new. That makes it not original. Um, maybe, a, maybe a helpful thing to think about is as you think about this picture, and if we actually took the time from the first century down to the time of the printing press when handwriting, handwriting manuscripts started to end, um, what we have as far as New Testament manuscripts we have over 5,800 Greek New Testament handwritten manuscripts. That's what we have in existence, 5,800. That's the answer to why there's so many differences. There's so many differences because we have so many manuscripts. We have so much evidence. And so that's actually a very helpful point that they might make for you. Well, there's 400,000 differences. Well, the reason that is because we have so much evidence. We have so many documents. We have so many words um, copied down from the originals um, that we have so much to work with. So yeah, there's, the more manuscripts you have, the more evidence, of course, the more um, spelling mistakes, skippings of lines, um, all of this sort of thing um, that just naturally happens in, in handwriting manuscripts. So at Chris, the end of the day, the, the big number helps. I was just going to, I mean, when they're original writing, they're not typing, and so yep. ink can be heavier in one area, so it can Someone, you know, I could say, hey, like if you're the original writer, mm -hmm. let's say I come after you, and I say, hey, I don't see a comma. So just because you're the original writer, maybe maybe there should or should not be a comma. So you have the synergy of working together. I can come to you as you wrote it and say, hey, should this be there? Right. So we're working in union together. Right. Yeah. Um, Jason reminds me of something else that might be helpful as you think about um, why some of these spelling mistakes, some of these 400,000 like spelling mistakes happen. Um, you're writing a papyrus, you're probably writing, you know, uh, under candlelight maybe. Uh, this is, um, let me see. Okay, so Here's the point. Our Greek New Testament, early Greek New Testament manuscripts were written in all caps, no spaces, no punctuation, solid continual lines of letters. It's very strange that they did. I don't understand. Um, I think it's like us, like if you know a language well enough, like you can make out what I just wrote, right? If you, if you, if you work at it. But it's very easy to make mistakes when there's no spacing between the words, when there's no punctuation. And a lot of the spelling mistakes and errors that, that come along through the copying of manuscripts is, is for that sole reason, just how they wrote at the time. All capital letters, no spaces, no punctuation. So when you look at some of these early manuscripts, even if you know Greek, it's very hard to read them. Because, I mean, 
we're just so used to, to having spaces between the words and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, again, if you hear the number 400,000 variants, that's nothing to worry about. It's actually a good thing because we have so many um, documents. That's why there's so many errors. Let me leave you with one more um, positive word on that number that I gave, 5,800 um, New Testament manuscripts. So that's the New Testament. We have um, 5,800. Let me see. When was the New Testament written? First century? You know, maybe, maybe we can say 70 AD is a good average. 70 AD, the New Testament was written. Um, when do we have the first uh, evidence? Uh, what's the first document or evidence or manuscript that we have of the New Testament? What, does anybody know what the first one is? The little fragment of John. Right That's right. 125. That's right. Yeah, a lot dated to 125. 125 AD is the first manuscript we have. So how, how far is that? Let's say John wrote, and John probably wrote, um, the Gospel of John. Some people date it late, late 80s, 90, very late. So let's say 90 AD is the Gospel of John. We have a manuscript of it from 125. What's that, 35 years? 35 years um, from the time it was written to the first evidence of manuscript that we have of it, um, 35 years. That's that's pretty close. We're still within their lifetime, right? Uh, oh, yeah. well, John, maybe not. John was the elder. He, he actually for sure wrote that at the end of his life. Um, he may not have been around, uh, but there was definitely copies of it. We just don't have them. Uh, but 35 years. So as we think about the New Testament more in general, what number did I give? 5,800? 5,800 Greek New Testaments. Not, not complete New Testaments. Like even this is just a scrap. This first, the very earliest one we have is like the size of a credit card. Um, it's just a, a very small scrap. Very interesting um, scrap indeed because it's from John 18. You know what the earliest evidence we have of, of, the, of the New Testament, the very, the very first evidence we have is from a text in John 18 where Jesus is before Pilate. And the very earliest little scrap of Greek New Testament writing that we have is Pilate asking Jesus what is truth. Very interesting. You know what I mean? I think that's pretty cool. Okay, so this is our New Testament. This is the data for our New Testament. The closest runner-up when it comes to works of antiquity, right? So we're talking about this may seem strange to you. Man, we've got to study all these manuscripts, and we've got to find the differences. And, man, this, I mean, 35 years, that's kind of a long time. Let's look at the closest runner-up to the Bible, to the New Testament, as far as works, old works of antiquity, and how trustworthy and they can be um the, the runner-up is homer does anybody know homer's iliad yeah. if you do you're a better man than me i don't know what he was talking about okay but here's the numbers for homer's iliad uh date written 900 a.d homer had a 900 years head start right than the new testament in getting manuscripts copied and, and produced he had a 900 year head start um, what's the earliest copy we have of uh, Homer's Iliad? The earliest copy we have, 900 A.D., first copy we have of it is 400 A.D. I think that 900 should be B.C. Is that B.C.? Yes, of course it should be. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Good eye, good eye. Somebody's paying attention. Good, good. So, yeah, this should be B.C. as well. So how big is that, that gap? between the, the time of writing to the first manuscript we have? 
500 years. Now remember, this is the closest it gets to being as textually reliable as the Bible, Homer's Iliad. 500 years. And again, how many manuscripts do we actually have to put together to study to see how um, accurate the copies have been? This is the closest runner-up. Now these numbers are kind of old, but there's 643 at the time of this, um, this count, which was probably at the late, late 90s, 1990s. This is the closest. Because we're out of time, I won't go on, but this is the closest that we have. Closest competitor to the Bible as far as new text, uh, textual data to compare to. The Bible, uh, Daniel Wallace, the, the textual, one of the leading textual scholars in the world, is over here at Dallas Theological Seminary. You know what he calls this? He calls this an embarrassment of riches for the New Testament. That's how he words it. It's embarrassing how much more textual data we have for the New Testament than any other book in history. You know, so people will talk about Homer's Iliad. They'll, you know, produce books. Nobody's questioning what Homer actually said. But yeah, people Where will Homer question. Write? I'm not familiar with him. Homer's Iliad, what was it about? I don't know. You remember? It's, just a, it's a, Greek, a Greek tragedy, just telling the story of Philosophy different gods or? and all this stuff. Yeah, pretty much. As they, how they do stuff, and it's just a big story. Just the traveling and stuff. Is it, is it uh, fictional? I think it is fictional. I don't think it's uh, historical in any way. Maybe, we'll, maybe you'll recognize these guys. Aristotle and Plato, right? Don't you hear, like, philosophers, like, just endlessly for devoting their, their lives to studying Aristotle and the writings of Plato and debating with the intricacies and nuances of their philosophical views, right? I mean, they'll study it like they know exactly what these guys said. Um, but years from the rich, so Plato, maybe you do Plato, he wrote 400 B.C. Um, first record we have of Plato's writings, 900 A.D. That's a big gap right there. That's a big gap, 1,200-something years, right? But yet they know what they said. There's no question about what these guys said. How many manuscripts do we have of Plato's writings? Seven. Seven. Aristotle. 350 B.C. is when he wrote. Uh, 1000 A.D. is the first record. That's 1,400 years. Aristotle. Right? How many copies of Aristotle? There's a few. We have 49. Right, so these, this right here is the closest runner-up. Um, these are some guys you're probably familiar with that people will quote um, as if they actually know what they said and never question, but, um, but look at our New Testament. I mean, I think just this data alone, um, I think God is kind of saying something with just this data alone. I mean, look at the impact that the writing of the New Testament had. It had such an impact that this is what was produced. I mean, that's just what we have. That's not even what was produced. And what's funny is, even as you compare it to these, these numbers of other translate, this isn't even in including any other languages that it was translated into. This is just Greek manuscripts. If you expand that to the Latin and Syriac and, and Coptic that was copied at very early times that you can also use to determine the early writings, that number goes to like 24,000. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous what God has done to... Uh, preserve his word for us to give us some, just a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to textual um, data. Uh, maybe after church, I brought some of like my favorite books that I have on this issue. Uh, maybe y'all, if y'all are interested and you want to look through, like this is my favorite. This is called the text of the early 
New Testament. And what it has is just like pictures and stuff of the earliest, all of the earliest papyri that we have. If you want to see what, we're, what we've been talking about, really, this is the earliest we have. They put it all in one book. Pictures are horrible, black and white. I mean, I wish they would have done some nice glossy color. Uh, but yeah, so you can see right here what, exactly what the manuscripts look like. Uh, there's P52. That's what I was talking about. P52, that's the fragment of John. What is truth? That's, that's a pilot talking to Jesus. Earliest manuscript we have that we know about. Daniel Wallace has announced that they found earlier, um, but we don't know about those yet. They haven't published them, but these are the manuscripts, and uh, this, is a really, this is a really cool book that I have that you guys are welcome to look through um, if you're interested in it. Uh, but that's it. We're, at, we're fully out of time. I'm already going to get in trouble from Emilio, so uh, let's go to worship. Uh, we'll see you all over there. Thanks a lot.